All right. Well, look, uh, this is we're just going to keep this pretty, pretty loose and open. Um, just just do kind of, a, you know, half hour AMA sort of thing. Uh, so feel free to ask Gene questions about uh, topics ranging from Warhammer to uh, the Ukraine war. Um, socialism to something funny that starts with a similar sound. I don't know. Uh, make something up. But in any case, <laughs> I am, uh, I'm joined uh, by uh, Gene Bajalan, who uh, is a Kurdish-British uh, academic, normally teaches in Missouri, although uh, right now he is back in, uh, in the UK and whole. Uh, I may actually see him there in the next couple of weeks. I'm still trying to figure out if that's possible. But um, but he um, he is of course somebody who many of you will know from um, uh, one of uh, one of our brother socialist podcasts. Uh, this is Revolution, um, where uh, where he is is a uh, uh, on one half of the foreign policy uh, crew, along with Cuba. Let's just say Smith, uh, since uh, since I have trouble pronouncing Cuba's last name. Um, how are you doing today, Gene? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I, I hope am pre- you're doing well after class. Yeah, no, I'm pretty decent. Yeah, so I just finished teaching the uh, seventh session of this class. I've been teaching at Michael Albert's thing, the School for Social and Cultural Change, which is a class on uh, basically analyzing Marx's arguments in Capital Volume 1, uh, which is a really fun class. Like, it's, uh, you know, I want to... You know, like the uh, the goal is to give people something a little bit different from like a normal like capital reading group where we really focus on trying to figure out like okay, what's his argument for each part of this? Is uh, you know, is he making a good argument? Is he, you know, does does this part or that part you know uh, rest on nineteenth century economic assumptions that might be controversial now? Uh, if so, is there a way of like repairing it so it doesn't rely on that? You know, stuff like that. So uh, it's been a lot of fun to teach. It's been a lot of fun to be immersed in Marx's writing. Like the the writing in Capital is 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 amazing uh, in a lot of it, and it's uh, it's been fun to have this group of students because it's like a pretty big class. I think they're like fifty or sixty people who are taking it, and uh, and at least some of them are very like. Uh, uh, you know, they have their own ideas about Marx and, you know, they'll often disagree with me and we'll have really fun class discussions. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm very happy about it. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Funny you mentioned Michael Albert because we just had a meeting with the sublation team and we're hoping to invite him out to our launch event in New York. So that would um, nice. Yeah. Which, which I will be at, I should say. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm going to be on a, uh, a panel with Norm Finkelstein and uh, other panelists, TBA, uh, to talk about, you know, um, basically free speech and the radical left. I think we were going to try and get Michael Albert on that panel as well. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have been, I, I interviewed Michael uh, Albert um, once, uh, GTAA, that was like early 2021, I think. It was like, I believe that was like one of the first live episodes. Um, and it was an interesting discussion, although he's very like, um, I think he's very like, uh, bound to determine to sort of unpack his ideas in his particular way. So it's kind of hard to guide the conversation, but, um, but it's an interesting discussion. But I've been, I've been very happily working with him at the School for Social and Cultural Change 
for a while now. I think this is like the, um, God, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think this is like the fourth class that I've taught there. So. Well, he's a very nice man. I'll tell that he, he's been on TIR. We had a great conversation, very interesting life experiences that he shared with us. So yeah, I really enjoyed talking to Michael Albert. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, speaking of sublation media, which is, uh, so this is the, this is the, the press, uh, the, um, uh, that, uh, you know, that our, our friend Doug Lane is, uh, has started up, uh, after the end of his time at zero books. Uh, so it's, it's put it out Norm Finkelstein's book. Um, and it's also, um, it's also the, the name of a, uh, of a magazine that started, which, uh, which I'm very excited about. It's, it's got an, um, it's had, um, uh, I'm very excited about something it just published, which is by uh, one of your, um, uh, uh, you know, which is by, you know, Jason, the original member of uh, of the This Is Revolution crew back when it was, you know, it was at one time just him, uh, Jason Miles, very good friend of mine, uh, and it is, and it's something I actually haven't read the published version yet, but I did read like a rough draft of it while he was writing it. It's. Um, it's about the 1992 riots and kind of the history of Los Angeles leading up to the riots. And, um, and it's, it's like very, you know, it has a lot of the virtues of his video essays for people who are familiar with that, you know, which is to say it's got this kind of like this like eye for like interesting historical detail, but there's also like a, there's also like a wider sort of uh, political argument going on in there, which in his case is just like in the case of this article is, it's it's a uh, it's a mistake um, to to look at uh, police violence in the way that we tend to look at it uh, as in mainstream discourse and even in a lot of leftist discourse because it just kind of piggybacks off mainstream discourse, which is sort of primarily through the lens of racial prejudice, which is not because racial prejudice is not any part of this picture. Of course, it is, but because looking at it primarily through this lens obscures the the larger thing right which is that this is have this kind of aggressive militarized style of policing is is something that uh you know it is uh that you know it, it it doesn't arise from racial prejudice per se right what it arises from is a certain strategy by capital for for managing the bad uh the social ills that that are caused by widespread poverty and social desperation because it's both politically and literally cheaper to manage it that way than to expand the welfare state. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, Jason pitched this the, this article as part of his video essay project. And I would also know we also had David Grishkam uh, last week publishing on uh, taxes and COVID laws. But on Jason's uh, article, it's something that, you know, we, uh, this is a revolution, have been really thinking about trying to pass out is the fact that a lot of these reform strategies uh, put forward by liberalism and often internalized by elements of the left isolate a symptom of the economic system without going directly to the heart of it. So, of course, racism is part of the story of policing. But what Jason puts forward into the article is that, well, you know, the police force in 1989 was uh, nearly 40% made up of minorities. And looking at the question in the terms of, it's a question of anti-racism, 
ignores the structural facts that lead to lead to the militarization of police and the way that police are used to protect capital and to deal with the outcome of social degeneration. And I think that way of looking at things is really important when we critique some of the liberal approaches to reform. For example, we've had this tragic murder today in Buffalo with this uh, young man who's like murdered people you know, people are going to talk about gun control. And, you know, the, the question is, is, gun, is, is the problem with guns or is that merely an auxiliary factor that is making a, 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 a kind of deeper economic and social and cultural, uh, is, is uh, you know, coming out of a deeper so economic, social, and cultural malaise that um, America is in. And by fixating on the issue of gun control, or in the case of police violence, anti-racist training of police, we're really sort of isolating a particular issue, fetishizing it, and not getting to the heart of the core problem, which are the social, economic, uh, and cultural conditions that give rise to this type of violence, whether it is the kind of uh, far-right uh, mass killings or uh, gang violence or police violence, which are all a product of a system which is chewing up people and spitting them out. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's a really, really important point, right, that they this is just like, again, this is... Um, you know, like it, at a certain point, like uh, you almost feel ridiculous continuing to to say these things, but it it, it has the virtue of being true, right? You know that it's like uh, there's so many things that we we kind of want to make more complicated than that in some ways they really are, right? Not that their sort of particular manifestations aren't complicated, of course they are, right? But I mean, like to a very great extent, right? You know, there are a lot of um, you know, like I I think even on the left. I think in our sort of in our sort of quest to uh, to not sound simplistic, in our quest to um, you know to to not sound like insensitive to certain important things, whatever. I think we we sort of become complicit in obscuring the fact that it's like no, most you know like there are a lot of really important things that really are just as simple as as poverty, right? You know, as as uh, as the sort of as the sort of key key factor, right? I mean, if you're going to have you know, if people are, um, you know, if you're going to have great poverty, co you know, like side by side with great wealth, you know, and uh, and people have very little hope, you know, they're going to have, um, you know, they're going to, uh, you know, a lot of people are, are going to turn to, uh, a lot of people are going to turn to violent crime and, and the, you know, and, and so this kind of aggressive, uh, aggressive style of policing along with like, you know, harsh mandatory minimums and all that stuff is like one social strategy for, for dealing with that. Right. And there's like a, there's a, there's a racial dimension to how it plays out because there's a racial dimension to how poverty plays out in America. But, you know, and, the, and I would add to this, that capitalism as an economic system has always created others. The capitalism has, you know, there's this uh, phrase which is often used, I think it's from Cedric Robinson, I may be incorrect here, racial capitalism. The racial yeah. in that is somewhat redundant in the sense that all capitalism has created others, whether it was the Irish uh, in Britain, uh, whether you go to 
you know, the Middle East or to Southeast Asia, you have different ethnic groups which are stigmatized and excluded. And the, the roots of that can be found in the economic, uh, can be found in the economic system, which, you know, often they build on pre-existing prejudices, which are again linked to, you know, concrete material, military, uh, and, and economic structures. Uh, but the point to be made is that, you know, you could conceive of a capitalism in which the black people are on top and the white people are on the bottom. But a non-racial capitalism, I think that is uh, utopic because that's never existed. And, you know, the requirements of capital to maintain power, for capitalist state to maintain power, requires, you know, internal others to a certain degree. And, of course, the nation-state, which otherizes other populations based on where they happen to be born and what citizens <coughs> they have. So I think yeah. rooting, rooting these phenomena in material conditions is not to ignore their importance. You know, culture and uh, a phenomenon like racism, you know, they can't be easily disentangled from the material conditions that have birthed them. But to a certain extent, which groups are elevated and which groups are oppressed is, it's not random, but it's arbitrary. And it's brought about by the particularities of the historical process and how capitalism has developed in different parts of the world. It makes no sense to talk about, you know, anti-black racism and capitalism as being foundational in a country like Iran or right. perhaps in a, in, a, in a country like China, uh, you know, that, that kind of racism might exist, but it's really peripheral to the indigenous forms of exclusion and um, elevation and repression that exist in those societies. So I think sometimes Americans tend to generalize the particularities of the pathologies of American capitalism onto a global scale when they don't quite fit in different circumstances. If you go to a place like Israel, Palestine, you know, the, there may be racism within Israel, but uh, black Ethiopian Jewish people are certainly in a better situation than uh, the Palestinian population in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. So, yeah, I actually, yeah. I actually think this, this, um, the police issue, I think, brings that out in particular because you'll you'll see all these people who are like radical leftists making these arguments that like, uh, especially if they're like police abolitionists, they'll say things like, "Well, uh, police evolved out of the the old slave patrols," uh, and so see, it's like a fundamentally racial thing all along, and and it's the very confusing thing about this explanation. It's like, okay, so what? Why are there also police in all these other con countries that never had America's system of racial slavery, right? Like uh, that, and why is it that policing, you know, works, you know, in fundamentally similar ways in these places too, right? I mean, it's like it, it's not exactly. It, it's just not explanatory, you know. And and I think that, um, you know, just just you know, you mentioned Cedric jo Cedric Robinson. Uh, Cedric Johnson is good. Uh, you know, Cedric Robinson, uh, who, uh, you know, I have not read racial. Uh, you know, black Marxism, I guess that's his, that's his book where he talks about it. Um, I know Jason has, and doesn't like it very much. And I do tend to trust his judgment and says, I usually agree with him about stuff like this, 
but I haven't read it, so I can't comment, you know, but I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that there's a sort of way in which, um, like, like I've kind of come, in a weird way, I've sort of come to hate the word structure, because I think mm-hmm. that it's such a cheat code for, like, uh, lefty academics to pretend like they're saying something clear when they're not. Uh, you right. know, like, uh, you know, when you, when you say so, you know, cause like, are you talk are you just talking about prejudice or are you talking about, you know, disparities or, you, you know, like what, what are we, what are we talking about here? But, uh, but I, I do think that, you know, I, I mean, the points I've always found most compelling, you know, always, whatever for the last several years or whatever, since I've been convinced of a lot of this stuff, the points I found a lot, you know, very compelling are one, the sort of, uh, Adolf Reed, Walter Ben Michaels one that the, um, that, um, it's, um, you know, that like focus on disparities in a sense, misses the point. I mean, I, what I would say, this is me, not them, is that I think it could be useful cause, like as like an illustration of the arbitrariness of the distribution of, of wealth that we have right now. The fact that it's so clearly not a meritocracy, but, uh, but I think, in, in a sense, it misses the point, right? Because because we don't. This is the this is the you know read you know Ben Michael's point, right? That like um, you know as you know we could have exactly demographically correct proportions of each group at each lever layer of the economic hierarchy, you know, and uh, we wouldn't have a just society. We just have a differently unjust one. Um, and then exactly. and then like you know, and then there's a point. I'll I'll say. Look, I mean, our friend Doug Lane made this to me a couple of years ago when I was on the old zero books podcast. Um, and I sort of pointed out that the, you know, if you could like push a magical button tomorrow that eliminated all racial prejudice from everybody's heads, um, you know, that wouldn't eliminate the, um, the long-term economic effects of, of past systems of racial discrimination. And Doug said, yeah, that's true. But also I think it's important to realize that if you did that, the prejudice would be back in six months, because, um, you know, the structure is still there. Yeah, like, exactly. Exactly. Right. Every society where you have some sort of, you know, just to use this word underclass uh, that is has particular, you know, racial or ethnic or religious or linguistic markers to it. Right. Like that society will also will always generate some line of bullshit about how they have it coming because they're you know, inferior or lazy or something, because that's, you know, because that's what people need to do. Because, I mean, if you don't tell yourself stuff like that, you know, you wouldn't be able to live with it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you the, in, in, in using the term structure here to be concrete, what I mean is, you know, as long as you have a particular group disproportionately at the bottom of society, you would end up with ideological justifications for why that is the natural state of affairs. And to circle back to a point that you made, you know, people always highlight the fact that the police force grew out of slave patrols. I don't know the history in America well enough. That may be true in an institutional sense in the United States, in that the police force evolved directly from these structures. But that doesn't, as you point out, that can't be generalized because, for example, most police forces in Europe came into being in response to the enormous social unrest in the 1830s and 1840s in Europe, in which, uh, you know, there's no slave patrols, you know, right. in, in that context. And, of course, even if this police force institutionally grew out of the slave patrols, it is metamorphosized 
as capitalism has developed, to become a police force in a modern capitalist society with everything that intends on it. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I mean, I, I think there's a more, you know, movie aside a little bit from the racial example, I think there's a, there is a more general beef here, uh, which is that I think, and I don't want to like, I don't want to make this too much about the left because I think American leftists do this because Americans do this. But like, uh, I think the American left does have a bad habit of forgetting that other countries exist. and. Mm-hmm. And I think so. Like I think this example that we've been talking about is one is one case of that. But I think there are lots of them, right? Like so, just to to take an example in a completely different domain, um, like the way that so many people on the American left are obsessed with the party question. That like they think that like oh the real problem with uh, for like there being a breakthrough for the left in the United States is the two party system. And of course, I don't love the two-party system. I think that's bad. If if I could somehow, you know, get rid of it, I would. Uh, but it's just like, okay, guys, but like, you do realize that there are lots of countries with parliamentary systems and coalition governments and all that stuff where the left is incredibly marginal and uh, the, right. the same tendencies towards like neoliberalism and all of that stuff that have have played out within the Democratic Party in the United States have played out within their left parties. And that may be, may be accentuated in certain cases or uh, retarded in certain cases, but the, you know, the, the, the general tendency towards neoliberalization is a kind of universal of Western societies. It reminds me of the debates in Britain that people used to have about the adoption of proportional representation. Um, you know, the example people would say is like, well, if we have a proportional representation in Britain, we would end up like Italy with constantly changing governments uh, and, you know, complete instability. Leaving aside the fact that there have been coalition governments and periods of political uncertainty and instability in Britain, both in the 70s and also in the early 2010s, uh, look at a country like Germany, where they've had enormous amounts of political stability with a coalition. Coalition, uh, with coalition governments, which have survived for extended periods of time. You know, uh, they had uh, Helmut Kohl, Gerhard Schroeder, Angela Merkel, all of whom reigned for quite a long period of time presiding over coalition governments. So the, 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 the reality of that should make us alive to the fact that the causes of instability may or may not be made worse or improved by... Um, by by the political system, but this is really a secondary factor in understanding the orientation of a particular society, uh, and you know we shouldn't be fetishizing symptoms uh, as being the root causes of uh, social and political problems in our societies. Yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, we have a call from Chase. Chase, what's on your mind? Hey guys, how you doing? Good, how are you? Doing good. Not too bad. Um, I love everything you're uh, spitting right now, um, but I did want to maybe just play devil's advocate and push back with some of my own um, thoughts. Uh, the, the whole debate actually reminds me a bit of Adolf Reed and Ellen Meekson's Woods uh, debate in the 90s. I'm not sure if you two are familiar with that, but um, Wood took the perspective that... Um, at a significant level of abstraction, race wasn't a necessary concept for capitalism to sort of uh, keep going. And 
Reed actually took the perspective that, well, at a significant uh, degree of abstraction, you know, capitalism doesn't exist. It only exists as a historical phenomena. And um, as it's existed in history, it's always had ideas of race as part of it. And, and I guess I kind of agree with um, with a bit of both those perspectives. But yeah. um, I, guess, I guess where I want to push back on is, well, I think it's probably true as a historical matter that all capitalist societies have involved notions of race and, um, and nation state for that matter. Um, and that, you know, as an economic reality, uh, capitalism involves, you know, separating people into class groupings, um, between capital and labor, um, that doesn't fully explain the political reality of things involved. I mean, obviously in the American context or the context of the United States, you know, capitalism evolved in the context of a settler colonial society in the midst of transatlantic slavery and, you know, the rest. But, um, what that means is in the modern day, when we have these political fights and these political struggles, um, a lot of that is going to end up taking the form, it seems of that, you know, uh, racial framing. I mean, uh, Tucker Carlson goes on and talks about the replacement theory, you know? Um, he also talks about like global elites, but he talks about things like the replacement theory because, um, and I don't think he's, I, I guess my point is there's a reason that, um, working class agency is very, very hard to form, um, in a context like the United States. Um, it's because while it, makes sense from a kind of economic perspective or a left-wing economic perspective to um, try to, you, you know, unite the various factions of the working class against capital. The political reality is such that, um, that people don't conceive of themselves that way. And, um, and even the structure of inequality in the society because, uh, doesn't come out that way. I mean, I just went through a grad school class where we looked at human development index scores on like a neighborhood by neighborhood level. And, you know, even in places like West Illinois, where I'm from, the degree of, you know, economic disparity that maps along, uh, racially segregated neighborhoods in pretty much every town in America, um, is, you know, as or more significant than just the class differences between, you know, people who uh, you could define as working class and so, people so, who you sorry, could define as bourgeois. Uh, Chase, I just want to make sure I understand you. Can you, can you yeah. like, repeat that last claim? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I, uh, I just went through a class where we looked at a lot of human development index scores. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, w- I don't want to make, like, some incredibly grand claim about this because I don't have all the data in front of me, but you know, from what I looked at in a place like West Illinois, where I'm from, the difference between your average white family and your average black family in terms of household wealth and income, just using that as a proxy for, you know, inequality generally is greater than, uh, you know, you could say like just your average working class family and, your average uh, family that has significant wealth, at least so, so, in my hometown. So, so I'm curious, what's how the how that second one was measured? Uh, I mean, th- this I w- so I was looking at human development index scores, and I was also looking at the 
American Opportunity Index? Which... Right. Let, 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 me, let me have a little response to that. Yeah, yeah, please. So, so one, of the problem, uh, one of the problems is the way that we take statistics. If we, I mean, it is, a, it is an undisputable fact that for a variety of historical reasons, black people have, you know, been disproportionately pushed into the lower orders of society. And that is being compounded, of course, by a cultural superstructure that has built up uh, around that uh, prejudice, but also until within living memory, legal structures that excluded black people from, uh, you know, the opportunities that were afforded to white people in the United States. That is an indisputable historical fact. But since the liquidation of the last vestiges of American apartheid in the 60s and the 70s, there is a, it's important to recognize that these statistics will obfuscate the class differences within the black population. So, you know, if you take, there's a book called Racecrack, uh, which talks about this. If you take, you know, if you take a particular population group of black people and average out their wealth, their wealth is going to be incredibly low. Um, but if, for example, you took out, and I think uh, uh, Adolf Reed has made this argument, if you take out, let's say, the top 10% of black people and the top 10% of white people, you've eliminated um, the vast majority of the ra racial disparity. So some of the problem is the way that we take these statistics obfuscates the existing class differences and where precisely the wealth inequality lies. Because if you've got like tons of white billionaires in the United States, that drags up the average wealth of white people and you don't have the same enormously wealthy black people, that, you know, obviously means that the wealth disparity, which exists and is concrete, is accentuated in such a way and becomes a justification for a particular set of policies that are advocated for by the elites in not just the black community, but in lots of different communities uh, to try and get policies to address this racial disparity, but policies that benefit them directly, such as small business loans, such as housing things, things that do not necessarily benefit the vast majority of the community. You know, the same can even be said of police violence. You know, black people on average are more likely to be, suffer police brutality, but if you're a non-college degree black person in America and a college degree having a black person in America, there's also a pretty big disparity between your experience of policing and the experience of the uh, vast majority of the community who are black and brown. So I think there's a problem with statistics. The second issue I would say is that when we look at policies to address this, we should ask ourselves, do the policies that seek to address this disparity reify ethnic or racial differences? Do they strengthen them and support them and, and uh, put them into the structure? Or do they uh, dissolve and liquidate them? And if you want to think of a parallel, this may be a little bit obscure, 
in the lead up to the First World War, there was a huge debate among socialists about the appropriate resolution of the national question. And Austrian Marxists argued that each national community should have its own cultural autonomy, its own schooling. Hello? Oh, yeah. Gene, you're... Sorry, sorry. Sorry, yeah. Should have its own cultural autonomy and should have its own... Hello? Can you hear me? Uh, I can hear you just fine. I was just, I was just muted myself, so, so my noise wasn't coming through. Oh. Okay. So the, 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 the argument was that uh, the Austrians argued that every community would have its own schooling, and, it, and that schooling will be governed by the community. So when a person goes to school, they decide whether they're German, whether they're Ukrainian, whether they're Hungarian. And this was critiqued by Lenin, who argued this will just serve to reify national differences between people. And instead, the national question should be resolved on a geographical basis in which no particular group is given any special uh, privileges, including the dominant group. So the, uh, so the critique was by putting the hands Putting, putting the solution in the hands of inverted commas, the community, you're obfuscating the class differences within that community, and you're also reifying those differences between people based on their uh, cultural identity rather than their class interest. And if we look at a parallel in America, we could talk about something like reparations where, I don't know, the government cuts a check to every black person in America. I don't know how exactly you would execute that, but let's say there's that version but you could adopt a set of universalist policies which are geographically targeted to districts which are poor, which will inevitably be predominantly black and brown, and target your aid in that way and in order to both try and alleviate the, the, the historical disparities, but also to try and avoid the reification of racial difference in the United States of America. And I draw that parallel because I think that's an important one to ask when we talk about, is this policy, as socialists, is this policy going to reify ethno-national differences or is it going to dissolve them? And we should seek to dissolve those differences. That doesn't mean people should give up their language or their culture. I'm certainly not advocating that, but I'm talking about in a political sense, because if you want a society, see a society where every ethno-national community is institutionalized, go to a country like Lebanon, where it is literally in the constitution, and it creates no space for people to have you know, a freedom to choose their, their cultural identity. Uh, it, it's an oppressive system. And I think we should avoid policies that tend towards the reification of those type of differences. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly, I'm certainly with you on all of that. Um, and, you know, and I, th I think there's a lot that's interesting that could be said about that last part. Um, you know, I, I think here about our, uh, our departed brother Michael Brooks's uh, book against the web and that last, that final chapter on cosmopolitan socialism and, and what he talks about in there about, you know, sort of, um, you know, taking his cues from CLR James and other people about kind of seeing like the, um, everybody's cultural inheritance is the common property of everybody in a more egalitarian society. But, um, but, but yeah, I, I do want to particularly just circle back to, you know, because you, you said a lot of things there, they were all good, but I, I want to particularly circle back to 
one of the first things, uh, which was about the uh, the statistics themselves, right? You know that, in other words, uh, you know, I mean, what I was originally asking about was was just literally about the methodology. Like, if we were if we were looking for the the class differences at at like income or income background, or I know that something statisticians do a lot as a kind of rough and ready standard for classes, like educational attainment. Um, so, so HDI, uh, Human Development Index, is income, uh, life expectancy, and educational attainment. Okay. Uh, those three scores. Uh, okay, just okay. So it's like some, so it's like some system where like you, you get like where points from each of those end up like sort of being used for an overall evaluation of where you are. Right. Right. Okay. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I mean, I think it is probably. I mean, I think that first point that she had makes is probably pretty unsurprising that um, that the overall racial differences, if we're just taking into account every single white person or every single white person in some area and every every black person in some area, that um, that those are those are going to be bigger. Right, that the the, the difference is just purely, you know, like that the, uh, in other words, like, um, you know, if you're sort of talking about broad classes of the population, then, um, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take very many very rich people to uh, to wildly throw off the uh, the the numbers, uh, especially if you've also got a concentration of of um, of poverty you know, in the, in the other group, you know, like, and I mean, I guess it's, I guess like, um, I mean, I guess my big question would, would be like, what, what follows from all this, right? Like, um, and this is, and there's this weird tendency, like going back to what you said about the Adolf Freed, uh, Ellen, um, Mason Woods, uh, uh, debate, you know, which is like, a fascinating piece of information. It makes me really wonder if Adolf would, you know, would like how he would weigh on, you know, that, you know, uh, today, all this stuff. But it's like, also there's, I think this weird thing that happens. Sometimes we argue about these things where there are like four or five different things that are being argued about. And it all feels like in some strange symbolic way, they stand in for each other. Right. Uh, and, and it's, and I think something in, in my sort of, um, like crass pragmatic way like what i always kind of want to do to sort of cut through some of this stuff is be like okay what's the takeaway right like what do we is there a um is there going to be a difference in the political programs that would be suggested by one or another sort of answer to these things and if so what would it be Right. I, uh, just to, just to clarify something, I've actually met, uh, Karen Fields. Um, it was one of the high points of my life. Um, and I love that, that book racecraft. Um, and I feel like I've, I've learned a lot, um, from both the field sisters and I totally take the point about, um, class differences inside ethnic or racial groups as being incredibly significant. Um, to clarify in my own hometown area, what I was trying to say is that like, the deep pockets of poverty are very clearly racially segregated black neighborhoods. Um, and you know, you could, you could look at just, um, a map of HDI scores and very clearly spot out which neighborhoods it's going to be. And uh, unfortunately I don't really have like a good answer 
to yeah. your question, Ben. <laughs> yeah. because, but I don't. I guess I'm I'm suspicious both of the sort of race first sixteen nineteen projects narratives about you know let's look at everything through the development of slavery and white supremacy, um, and I find that story really inadequate. But I guess I'm also uh, increasingly suspicious that um, we're going to be able to form uh, a politics uh, completely on a kind of universalist class lines that tries to sidestep the fact that American capitalism, and I'm only speaking about America here. I know things develop incredibly differently in other contexts and I I'm, you know, in ways I'm not aware of, but I, I, it's really hard, I guess, for me to imagine an American left, which doesn't engage in say, relitigating the history of reconstruction towards a lot of people who watch Tucker Carlson. You know what I mean? That's a sort of don't know what you mean. I have to admit, right? Like okay. that, that, that I, I, I want to, I, I have a lot of questions about, about what that actually means to, to sort of relitigate that or, or, or what that sort of, um, or how that ties into political strategy, but I'll, I'll let you in say what I was going to say. Sorry. I mean, I think, I think, I think attempting to remedy, I mean, recognizing the racialized nature of the American experience is completely required. You can't ignore that question, but it has to be, it cannot be untethered from the materialist critique. So to put it, to put it very bluntly, look, if you go for pure anti-racism, politics. We live in a society, for sake of argument, you have like 20% of people are going to be fine and the rest are going to, they're going to have a tough time. Historically, that top 20% has been predominantly white, has been predominantly from one racial group. And what the liberal anti-racists seem to want to do is to diversify both the top and the bottom, to go back to the point uh, Ben raised about a Adolf Reed. If pure anti-racism is the objective of your politics, then it, it becomes entirely materially in the interest of white people to resist, you know, any kind of inverted commas, and I don't like this term, racial reckoning. However, the objective should be not to ignore racism, but to try and build structures in which political structures, you know, labor unions, political parties, mutual aid organizations, whatever those, uh, whatever those institutions are, that bring people together and seek to dissolve the differences between them and to push them along to a more class-orientated type of politics. The problem, I think, perhaps on the American left is there's, there's been a lot of imbibing of the liberal anti-racism narratives. And I think that is counterproductive because whether you think it's just or fair, um, justice, you know, the, it, it, to win power, you're going to have to win a significant proportion of white people to your political project. And if your political project is like, you're, you know, the white man is evil and you have to, like, defeat your internal white supremacist 24 hours a day. That's not going to be a winning political strategy. We have to direct people's 
anger at the system, at the people who are responsible for it, which is the ruling class. So that doesn't mean ignoring race. I think a lot of the so-called class-first politics insofar as it exists is actually identity politics because the you know many people who talk about let's only talk about class when they they say that they just mean like white men in the midwest with hard hats on but if we look at the proletariat in the united states it's a multi-ethnic formation made up of predominantly women right i would hazard a guess that black women make up a disproportionately large part of the American proletariat, the American working poor. So Definitely. I think we have to recognize those. We have to recognize that. I think the funniest thing I think is that in America, mainstream politics is increasingly being narrated in that you have the Republican Party, which is increasingly uh, pro-working class, and the Democrats who are liberal identity politics. When in fact, I think the Republicans are doing identity politics, except they're couching it in class terminology. And the Democrats, the liberals are doing a class politics. Uh, that is the, the sort of meritocratic uh, professional managerial class type of politics and couching it in identity politics. So like neither side is doing what it says on the tip. Yeah, I, I guess I guess this is one way of... I, I, I've, I've just been thinking about... Uh, Relitigating, uh, you know, relitigating reconstruction with the Tucker Carlson audience and, and what that means and how, how it might tie into differences about political strategy. And, and I mean, I guess I don't, I don't want to put words in Chase's mouth. Maybe this is not what you're getting at. But like, I guess I guess here's one thing that I would say concretely that I do worry that. There is a view that I run into sometimes that um, that says that like you can't have um, class solidarity um, until you have um, until uh, until you defeat racism, where defeating racism means, among other things that like people have like a better and, and more accurate picture of the, the racial history of, of the United States. And I've got to say, I think that's exactly backwards, right? Like I think that I, and I think certainly in terms of, I mean, I just, I mean, maybe it's my limited imagination, but I cannot stretch my imagination to see any scenario where it happened that way. I think it wouldn't well, happen that way. I think if, I think if it had to, I think if you had to fix everybody's attitudes first, then I, as a precondition for a left project, that I think there just is no successful left project and we should all find something other than politics to do with our lives. Uh, I think that, I think it would have to be the other way around, right? That they, that you'd, you'd find, um, you know, like, I mean, there is a certain sense in which racism, you know, is, 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 can certainly be an obstacle to, uh, to class-based political organizing that if people, you know, aren't willing to do stuff with, you know, uh, people of other races, you know, because of the prejudice, whatever, uh, you certainly have to get them past that. But I mean, I think that the, um, but I think that like people believe what they believe about history or, you know, not along to certain, you know, like, obviously I want to diminish Tucker Carlson's political influence as much as humanly possible, like that is a goal that I share, uh, but the question is how to do that. And I think that the, 
I think like people believe in what they believe, you know, the sort of bullshit they believe about, you know, the uh, apartheid racial history of the United States and their denialism about that, right? People believe that because it fits in with their sense of who they are and what their interests are and, you know, what kind of, what kind of political project they identify with and all that stuff. I think you, I think what, I think you change all that stuff. And then I think which sort of historical narratives people are open to is going to, you know, if anything is going to, is going to open up that. Right. So I think that the way to, um, you know, the way to like get people off of the Tucker Carlson message uh, is to, you know, I mean, this is certainly my my thinking on this. I mean, this is this is dictated by you know my strategy for you know like whatever. It's a very 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 small front <laughs> in a larger war, but you know my strategy for doing stuff like debating Charlie Kirk and whatever, right? Is not to you know like I think focusing on calling people racist. That's what they expect, right? I mean, that's what they're that's what they 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 thrive off of, right? You know, their 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 entire strategy is based on getting that kind of response uh i think that the useful response is showing that it's like no any sort of mirage of of class politics here is is uh you know it is is bullshit right i mean this is that this is just identity politics not class politics you know so it's like focusing not on like you know not on the sort of um arguments about american history and not on the stuff about you know the sort of direct arguments about identity politics but on like Look, why does it, you know, Tucker's such a populist, you know, why doesn't he support Medicare for all, you know, why doesn't he support labor unions, you know, what's, what's, uh, like, I, th- I think, and like, when you do get into more racial issues, I think doing it through that, through that prism, right, you know, that the, uh, uh, that, um, you know, he, he doesn't want to, um, you know, even stuff like about, like, giving a path to citizenship for undocumented workers, I think a sort of argument from, um, I think a sort of argument from how it's it's to the benefit of the entire working class to do this, you know, is, is just going to be more is just going to be more effective, you know, that the it's a it's a steep hill either way, right? But I think it's less of a steep hill if you uh, but if you climb it that. There's yeah. a flip side to this, Ben. It's not all oh, that's the that's one part of the equation, but the other part of the equation is that for a certain certain elements. Of the various communities, not just black people, but you know, uh, you know, all the different communities in, in America that have been either formally or informally excluded from the American mainstream, excluded from having full citizenship rights. Um, for that, for, for a certain element of that, for a for a, you know a petty bourgeois intellectual um, part of that class, the the kind of this form of racism as a moral issue gives them a competitive advantage in the marketplace, in academia, of course, diversity, uh, inc- uh, uh, equity, and inclusion, uh, in, in in the NGO industry, where you know you can get paid to do racial sensitivity training. Uh, the sixteen nineteen project. Uh, what happened to the prof- uh, the person who founded that? They ended up getting an endowed position at a prestigious university. There are concrete class interests driven by elements of the minority community who are better off and more secure than the vast majority of their compatriots who basically are living off the trauma 
of the majority of the population who are brutalized both by the security services in the United States and by capitalism more generally. And it is in their interest to promote a particular brand of anti-racism that they can benefit from. In a, in a world where many of these professional jobs are you know, going into decline, it becomes a way that you can sell yourself. You don't have enough minority people on the faculty. Instead of expanding the faculty, we can track. There are fewer positions, so people have to fight harder, and people have to look for more justifications. The NGO industry that builds up uh, across, uh, you know, has built up in the context of diversity training, the expansion of HR departments and, you know, the birth of HR liberalism. This particular brand of liberal anti-racism is not innocent. It's not a misunderstanding, but reflects the concrete material interests of certain elements of the minority community who need, to, who need this ideology in order to survive in a competitive economic system. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that the... Um... Yeah, I think that's definitely right, right? But I mean, I think that the points complement each other, right? In other words, like... No, yeah, I think it's, it's they're two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I think if you're, you know, I mean, I think if your project... And I think the, I think a lot of the problem on the left comes from people who are very well-intentioned um, sort of seeing this discourse that makes perfect sense if the goal is sort of maneuvering for position within the professional classes. Um, and... You know, they just kind of like see like that's just kind of what they understand anti-racism to be, and then they sort of very reasonably think principled left politics should involve opposition to racism, uh, which it should, and then it, and then they they connect the dots in a way that I would argue doesn't really make sense, and I think the way, and I think it doesn't really make sense for exactly this reason, right? So I mean, I guess maybe the difference between my political intuitions and chases might just might just be this, right? That the I don't. Um, I kind of think that the left can't go far enough in the direction of emphasizing bread and butter material interests and emphasizing the commonalities of interests of everybody at the bottom of society, right? That, like, as a matter of practical politics, as a matter of winning the widest possible majority for our politics and undermining the right as much as possible. I, I, I think. I mean, maybe we could if we really worked at it, but like, I, I have right now, I have a hard time imagining what it would be to go too far in that direction, right? Because I think the more we're sort of arguing about reconstruction with the with, with Tucker Carlson, I mean, look, Tucker Carlson has a has a extremely inaccurate and fucked up understanding of American history, for sure. But I, I just don't, I, I don't, I think if we're talking about, like, how people can be pulled away from his worldview, I'm much more pessimistic about that as a lever for pulling people away from the worldview, his worldview, and I'm much more optimistic about, you know, a sort of, um, you know, emphasis on, on, on bread and butter issues as a way of pulling people away from his worldview. Because, like, frankly, I think people could have, like, all kinds of, like, dumb and wrong ideas in their heads about history, about, um, you know, the... Uh, you know, about, like, American nationalism and patriotism, etc., and still be on board with some concrete struggles for, for the kinds of things that will, you know, actually do more than anything uh, to, uh, to help the, uh, the black and brown working class because 
the things that would benefit everybody will be, will benefit them disproportionately. Yeah, I, I mean, to some extent, we're, we're probably just splitting hairs here because I mean, I think probably the strategic path forward is like Christian Smalls. You yeah. Know, like let's let's organize Amazon before we have like academic fights. You know. Yeah. Um, and, and let's organize Amazon, by the way, with one of the main organizers uh, being a right. uh, being a, a Trump supporter. But yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, uh, my, I, I guess my comment on reconstruction was kind of glib, but what I meant by that was that, um, there are questions around, I guess, self-conception that stems from history and national identity and these sorts of things that factor in to how people act politically. And I'll, I'll try to not talk so obtusely, but, um, I guess what it comes down to is maybe I have less confidence that material interests um, will be the primary interests for people's political behavior. Um, you know, I uh, I know you live in Georgia, so I'm you, you probably run into all kinds of people on the right. But my sense is that you know, they're, uh, I think Carolina boy actually was in one of these chats recently. And he made this point. I think a lot of people on the right are politically open to um, to uh, more redistributive and more class-based and, and authentically class-based, and we should welcome that class-based uh, politics. But the cultural stuff is still primary. Um, but and we can't, primary we can't, for a reason. We can't. The problem is by fighting on these cultural terrains. We're moving on to the terrain of the of the political right. We're fighting on their home territory, uh, when instead we should be moving them to fight on our territory, which is, I mean, if you're a Democratic Party that's offering nothing, then, you know, you're not going to be able to combat this politics because you don't have a, a, a strong material counter-argument. So all that's left is cultural uh, preferences. We have to, uh, you know, for example, when people are like, you know, start going on about trans people in the bathroom, instead of like getting into the uh, like metaphysical debate of what a real woman is, just go, what, what's your solution? Do you want to put people in jail? Do you want to have a man checking everybody's bits before they go into the ladies' toilets? What is your concrete solution to an issue, and I think you often expose them because they're they're trying to get you to debate on their territory to make you look silly. When instead, you need to get them to be, debate on your territory and make them look silly because you know mm. nobody likes an away game, and you know fighting Tucker Carlson on whether the American flag is inherently racist. Is a completely pointless battle to be fighting, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I no, 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 I'm not suggesting that. Just I, to be clear, I, I mean, I, I yeah. think I think maybe here's here's one way of framing the difference between what you said, and what Jade said, which is that like I think you could share the premise that a lot of people who mm -hmm. uh, would actually be quite open to redistributive economic appeals end up on the right anyway because of cultural views. I think you can share that premise um, and 
and draw very different conclusions from it, right? Which I think you, I think the two of you are, right? So it's like, so does so is the conclusion that therefore we should, um, you know, what we need to do is, you know, kind of spend our time fighting them on the cultural stuff, so they'll have good views on that because that's the only way, could, you know, since they're already open to the the, the economic stuff. So, so clearly this is the obstacle, and so you only get them on the left if you, you know, if you convince them of the cultural stuff. Uh, is that the is that the argument, or is the argument, uh, well, the fact that that people who, um, the fact that people who who are all else being equal open to us on the economic stuff, end up siding with our enemies over the cultural stuff shows you how dangerous it is to let the conversation become about the cultural stuff that, you know, they, that like the more, the more you allow them to make that the subject of conversation, the more they're going to win. Right. Cause clearly they, they do win there even with people who, who are, are open to us on, on other, you know, on other questions, right. The more we can make them spend that time talking about, you know, the others, you know, talking about, um, you know what the laws should be, how material resources should be distributed. You know, real politics. Then, um, then the the more the more you're going to get some of those people. Uh, you know, the more you're going to get some of those people. Uh, you know, siding with us. You know, because because if you think like, if ultimately like, why is it that people? Why is it that people end up like forming so much of their political identities around the cultural stuff? Right. I mean, like, is it just that like? In a vacuum, regardless of how politics was being talked about and, and fought about in the real world, um, that it's just more important to people like that, like how you feel about American history is just more important to uh, to them than um, than than whether they have a job or how much they're paid or whether they have health care. Uh, I, I don't really think that I think that even if you look at polling data, it doesn't really show that. I mean, certainly every, you know, most groups of voters uh, will will tell you that the issues that they find most important are um, are you know the the sort of bread and butter issues you know so it's like the the fact that in practice people are forming their political identities around this cultural stuff tells me that they have a that it's like well look when their perception is that this is really what political fights are about and sure the cultural stuff that I don't like might be attached to some other stuff that I like but really what it's about. Right, really, the thing that the main thing that's being fought about, and really, like added some capitalist realism here. Really, the main thing that I believe is concretely an issue because I don't really believe that anything's going to change on the economic stuff. Because my entire my entire experience of politics tells me that nothing ever really changes for the better on the economic stuff. Like, if that's your perception that you think that that's kind of an abstraction, and the real concrete political fight is being fought over culture, then it makes total sense to me that people with bad cultural views and good economic views would end up like forming their political identity over the bad cultural views. I mean, the, the question, you know, the, uh, the, the question to, to, to quote the thesis on Feuerbach is, you know, how to change it. Right. I, I, and I don't want to go back and forth if this is boring to you guys, but, um, I, um, I, I guess I live, okay. So I live in Iowa and I'm just going to use this as a, uh, a case study, I guess. And, you know, I, I watched it go from a, fairly swing uh, area to a pretty hard right Trump area. I don't think people's politics around economic issues changed that much in that time period. Um, you know, you talked about did people's views on history, was that the thing that dictated it? Now, I don't, I don't know if I'd put it that way, but it did seem like there was a relatively autonomous 
change in, you know, a lot of things. I mean, the disappointment of Obama, the change in the media landscape and a bunch of other things that weren't that I wouldn't characterize as just being caused by changes in underlying political economy that, you know, change people's political behavior. And, um, I, 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 look, I'm not, I wouldn't ever. I mean, I mean, I mean, one way of putting what you just said is that there has been a successful, like rhetorical strategy and a successful mobilizing strategy by the right. Right. And that, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. and, and that's, so it, it's not that something's changed in terms of political economy. I mean, you know, yes and no, but whatever. Let's put that aside, right? Like, quite apart from anything that's changed in political economy, there, there has been this, like, successful, you know, I mean, look, I mean, look at the look at the transformation of, of Tucker Carlson. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when that dude right. was the ultimate. Crossfire. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was like the kind of Republican the guys on Chapo called a bowtie dipshit, right? You know, he was like a... This kind of quasi-libertarian, but would sort of like defend George W. Bush on everything, kind of Republican, and like look at the way he's he's transformed himself, and look mm-hmm. at the way in general the Republican Party has, and so it's like you have this strategy that they've been using that has been, um, you know, both sort of positioning themselves as pseudo-populists, but like in this way that that like really really emphasizes certain kinds of hot button cultural issues which they know can work for them. And that strategy has paid off for them, right? They've, they've like right. won some new support because of it. And they've, they've, they've energized some of their old support and, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, right. And, and, and what the, and what's been done on the other side hasn't, hasn't effectively countered it. Like we can agree that that's the situation, right? And that like, there's a certain way of like expressing that fact that says, yeah, this is the, you know, like what changed was, you know, was, co- was, you know, cultural in a somewhat autonomous way, and like that's fine, right? I'm, I'm I'm fine with describing it that way, but you know, the real question now is like, what's the most effective way to to counter that strategy, right? I mean, like, is it just to be a little crude and probably caricature, uh, you know, the uh, the other position here, right? Like, you know, I mean, but like, just just like, do you? Is the is the way to counter that one that sort of focuses on fighting about those cultural issues themselves, or is it one that might fight about them to a certain extent because like they can't be entirely avoided, but that tries to front load as much as possible, you know, changing the channel to the kinds of issues uh, where, you know, if politics are primarily framed, framed you know, where where it's it's not a way game for us. Right. I I guess. Um... I, I wouldn't want to imply with everything I've said that I think the proper strategy for fighting on the culture terrain is the one that the left has taken recently, where you just, like, scream at people and condescend towards them and things like that. Um, I think Michael Brooks might have actually made this point a, a long time ago, but um, that, you know, I actually think Obama did pretty good on this uh-huh. in that he, he weaved a kind of mythology about, you know, all the different sort of types um, of, of people that kind of went into the American tapestry and, you know, uh, I mean, it was really effective. It was really effective out here. And yeah, it was completely empty of class content sure, sure. except for the, the PMC class content that was there. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to boost it too much, but I guess my point was that it, it didn't sidestep these sentiments that people I think actually do, um, politically, are politically motivated by. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm not I, like, you know, 
look, I was a complete Bernie guy, and you know, uh, I'm I complete. I, I feel like I am kind of splitting hairs with you guys just for the sake of conversation. Yeah, I mean, one way to maybe, you know, that like, I mean, look, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I actually think, um, I actually think that Bernie, especially the second campaign, uh, got like you know, gave way too much ground to identitarian rhetoric. I think that the, um, I think that like, I think the thing that was and like, whatever it's a, it's a little bit of a catch 22. Cause I think the things that, you know, cause I think the democratic primaries and the general election are such a different context. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like a little bit of a, um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of a catch 22 for the left there, you know, cause, uh, cause I think, because uh, I think that like the things that'll win the Democratic primary, and the things that'll be helpful to general elections sometimes point in the opposite directions. But I think that like Bernie at his best, you know, was was good because he was such a good channel changer, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that to the extent that he was doing a bit less of that, you know, that was a you know that was a bad thing, you know, that they that, yeah. that it it sort of um, you know that it like kind of obscured that, you know, like I I think. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much we're really, I, I'm not sure how much we're really disagreeing about here, but I do, um, you know, I, I do think, I mean, I think the point about Obama is really interesting, right? Because it is mm-hmm. true that there was something rhetorically, you know, that I think you could rhetorically learn from about the Obama campaigns. Um but it is interesting, right? Because it wasn't like, you know, I think there are moments where Obama did a really good job, and I think there are moments where he did a really bad job. Like the, uh, the you know, God, guns, and religion is still like one of the favorite quotes of uh, right. of, of, of of everybody in the Tucker Carlson camp, you know. But like, uh, but but I think that to the extent that he did a really good job, I think. I, I think there's a really interesting question about what can be learned from that and in what direction. Right, because cause he certainly wasn't like, um, you know, he certainly wasn't like tried, you know, like if anything, I mean, his rhetoric was this kind of like, you know, kumbaya post-racialism. Right. That, well, well, the first chapter in Racecraft is just an entire uh, rejection of early Obama post-racialism. Uh, um, and it, it feels so anachronistic if you reread it. Because it's you know, how far away that conversation is. Yeah, no. Obama, Obama was like uh, giving a depressed person a bunch of MDMA, and then <laughs> when the party's over, America had a big hangover because you know some of the processes that occurred under Obama, which weren't necessarily entirely his fault, but certainly sure. his policy decisions uh, impacted them had profound effects on American society, not to un- disli- um, not too unlike under Bill Clinton with the evisceration of manufacturing, or even under Tony Blair where British manufacturing, you know, took its death shot. So, I mean, it's, no, I, uh, I, it's what Chase is saying is that the political task ahead of us is a monumental one because of the huge wake of propaganda and the extreme power of particular cultural narratives amongst large sections of the American population, I couldn't agree more. I think that is an undeniable uh, truth. 
Uh, I think you're totally accurate about that. I think the prospects of winning that battle uh, are extremely difficult. We have to be realistic uh, about that. I don't disagree with any of that. But that realization doesn't change, I guess, my fundamental approach, which is that this has to be addressed by developing a politics that seeks to de-emphasize racial and ethnic differences between people and emphasize a common class solidarity against the exploiting classes that govern this society. And, um, yeah, that's a difficult sell, especially when you have a very organized and well-funded political campaign orchestrated by the political right, and also uh, a, uh, a hegemonic liberalism, which uh, which has certain premises, uh, premises that um, have infiltrated the left and have come to dominate left uh, discourse and have pulled us away from what is fundamental to socialist politics, which is class politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think that's totally right. I, I was also just going to point out on Obama that um, that you know one interesting little coda to that is that the you know okay, so the stuff the first chapter of Racecraft is about you know is is two thousand eight Obama and you know that sort of message of 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 racial healing right is which you know deserves to be criticized in many many ways that that don't need to be recited for anybody here but like also it is interesting to think about how profoundly different it is from right, right. Uh, you know more typical contemporary left messages about it and like why it would be more appealing to a lot of people than more co- typical contemporary left messages about it but um but it's also um i think it is also interesting to remember the 2012 election Right, which um, Obama won in a really interesting way because he did something that doesn't quite make sense on the face of it, which is that as the incumbent uh, in a bad economy, he ran on the economy, right? Like it, it, it's a it's a bizarre thing to to be able to do, right? You know, but he he did it. You know, he sort of did it anyway. You know that the um, and the way the reason he was able to do it is that the Republicans nominated Mitt Romney. And who was lacking nothing but the monopoly bag, you know, like the, the, you know, the, the bag with the, you know, the, with like a dollar, dollar signs on the outside of the bag and like the monocle and the top hat. Right. You know, and so uh, in this weird way, you know, usually if, if the election is a referendum on, you know, what people think about just one of the candidates, it's usually the one who's in office already. But the election sort of ended up being a referendum on what people thought about Mitt Romney's uh, economic views. Like yeah. to ninety-seven percent was it that he said we're lazy and just wanted a handout? Ninety-seven percent. It wasn't ninety-seven, but it was like yeah, I don't remember. What... It was like forty-nine percent just want a handout or something like that. It's like right. half the population. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, like like Obama ran in some ways rhetorically like an almost birdie like campaign in two thousand twelve. It's kinda of hard to remember now. Right. Yeah. Well no, Obama had a supreme political charisma which, you know, plays an important role sure, in a presidential system. And the Democratic Party seems to have this kind of delusion that 
just because they can find someone super charismatic, whether that was um, whether that was uh, Clinton or whether that was Obama, that they have locked in a governing majority. And of course, the Democrats. Uh, the problem with the Democrats' uh, assumptions about politics are that they're fundamentally racist in the sense that they b- believe that they have a lockdown. They believe that demographics is destiny, if you remember that phrase, which was being banded around, that inevitably... Yeah, it's, 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 minor, kind, of, it's kind of replacement theory for liberals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's replacement theory for liberals, and it's based on the crudest cultural essentialism and also leaves them wholly unprepared to fight what the Republican Party and what the right wing is becoming, which is, uh, you know, of course, white supremacists are an important part of the Republican coalition, but increasingly minority groups who are pulled in, you know, the, the future of the Republican Party is going to look a lot more like a Proud Boys get-together based around hyper-masculinity, based around, you know, uh, you know, penny bourgeois, small business culture, hustle culture, all these kind of things. Uh, that's what the that's where the party is going, and the Democrats just yelling, "It's all white supremacy." They're going to totally miss the boat on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. I like, think they already have. I have like um, the um, I completely concur about the the point about there's more Hispanic voters and like Christian nationalism. You know, it's kind of a buzzword, but that traditionalist view of the family is going to be like really important for these people going forward. You know, yeah, exactly. And the the racial essentialism that comes out of the mouth of liberals, including many from minority groups, is just appalling, and it is politically detrimental to any kind of left wing politics because, again. Liberalism is hegemonic, and it shapes the way that the political left, insofar as the left exists, talks about politics. And we're totally, you know, the way, like Ben has written about this far more eloquently than I can uh, articulate, but we're going to make conservatives if we do this cultural war stuff over and over again. Because, you know, it becomes down to just, it comes down to a whole lot of issues which, you know, go against people's common sense or uh, insofar as it exists. And instead, we need to be fighting this political battle on a basis where we can win, because we're not going to win the culture war. Yeah, no, I, I think um, I think that's right. I just want to make sure everybody's listening. I, I know Chase got it, but everybody's listening got what you were saying about the Proud Boys, which you know, maybe one way of sharpening that is it's going to look more like a Proud Boys rally than a Klan rally. Uh, yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, the Proud Boys are sort of ambiguously semi-fascist, but they uh, but uh, but they're actually also multiracial. Right. So um, and and yeah, I mean, Trump, uh, you know, I mean, even in 2016, uh, Trump did uh, Trump actually picked up non-white uh, votes compared to Mitt Romney in 2012. And he did better in 2020. And, you know, and and, and yeah, I, I think that just sort of. um you know, insisted that, you know, white supremacism is the core of the issue, I, I think is is not going to, I think it's just going to be unconvincing as a rhetorical strategy because, you know, most, uh, like, the way that most people understand that term is just not going to map on to 
to their perception of conservatives they know and um and and yeah but i, th- I think as the and there's and yeah why why on earth would demographics be destined to, right i mean you could be i mean you could be culturally conservative in lots of ways regardless of uh, what racial group you come into and uh and also not for nothing you know uh, uh you know it, it makes sense as you get more um upwardly mobile small business owners for example um you know, who are black, you know, I mean, of, of course, some of them are going to be Republicans. It'd be weird if not, right? But anyway, there is a lot to be said about this. Uh, the, uh, uh, but uh, we, because the discussion was so interesting, we've actually gone much longer than was planned. So uh, Chase, is there any last thing you want to you kind of get in here to, to kind of cap off the discussion? Yeah, I guess a quick question, Ben, that I wanted to toss to you is, um, I loved your Charlie Kirk debate. And um, I've been sharing it with people, not only because I thought you did so well in it, but because I thought it was really revealing for where Kirk's head is at these days. And one thing I noticed, and it's not just with Kirk, I think it's really representative, and we've kind of touched on it, is how much of the political right, when they talk about issues dipping into redistribution, talk about in terms of the family, starting families, you know, ensuring that families you know, have, uh, yeah. uh, have resources, even though they'll do nothing materially to support that, you know, I guess, how do you view that turn in politics? Because the family isn't just cultural. It has material bases, a, yeah. a material basis as well. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. It was kind of an open-ended question to end no, with. That's... But it, it's been on my mind a lot. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I think that the, um, I think that we should, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, I think that like, it's not a bad thing that the Working Families Party calls itself the Working Families Party, right? I mean, that like, I, I think that it's good to, for the overwhelming majority of human beings, that's a word that's going to have positive associations, right? You know, that uh, in fact, it's going to be, you know, I mean, really, you know, it's like family is is the sort of primary thing that most people are going to associate with sort of warmth and, and good human relationships and uh, all of that stuff, you know, in their, in their lives. Right. So I, I think there's a way of using the word family that sort of really refers, you know, to, um, you know, well, I guess the traditional family, right. Is a way of putting that right. That like incorporates all sorts of like bad assumptions about, gender roles and you know what does and doesn't count as an acceptable family and you know and all that stuff and of course you know we can't have any truck with any of that but but i guess i guess it is interesting in terms of the larger issues that you and i and gene have been talking about that you know for the last while since like when somebody like charlie kirk constantly uses the word family he knows what he's doing because he he's conflated those two things. And that's kind of the point, right? <laughs> like, uh, like he wants to, um, there are all kinds of bad and reactionary things built into, you know, how he understands what counts as a traditional family. But like, he's also played into the fact that most people have incredibly positive associations with, with, with their families and, you know, families are a good thing. And he's, he's, he's tapping into the fact that like, there is a widespread feeling, especially among, um, you know, working class millennials and people younger than millennials that, you know, they like have to wait much longer and it's much more precarious to, to start a family, right. To get married and have kids 
you know, and, and that that's a bad thing, you know, right? Uh, and and so I think, yeah, I think it's worth being real careful about how we respond to that and how to do it in a way that doesn't concede. You know, I think the real formula, like there's, a, there's an article that I want to write, maybe I'll write it for Sublation at some point since uh, I pitched it to another publication, which I won't name because uh, they didn't take it, but uh, it wasn't Jacobin. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll take anything from you, Ben. Uh, I appreciate that, Jade. But uh, basically, this an article I want to write that's like, where are all the new birdies? Where I I want to sort of make the point that none of the down ballot birdiecrats are actually applying Bernie Sanders' political formula, even though that seems to be much more effective than what they're doing in uh, in reaching out to a larger audience, right? I mean, like that which is that basically the Bernie formula is that you have staunchly progressive views on social policy issues, but you also aggressively try to change the channel to, um, you know, to, to bread and butter stuff. And you don't, and you don't use sort of alienated language that most people aren't going to respond to. Um, I totally, I mean, I'm, this may be a, maybe a bit of a hot take, Ben, but you know, like AOC has increasingly got, less attractive as a politician precisely because she's adopted the language of HR liberalism, especially in her Twitter persona. You know, like, when people start, like, I get that people get threats on Twitter, but come on, Twitter is, you know, like, someone saying something on Twitter is violence, is the same as you know, getting beaten up on the street. No, or I mean, she, she she talked about people who like said she was a fucking sellout or whatever, which is a stupid thing to say. But like, she described that as violence, which is you know insane. And yeah, it's it's incredibly. I, I think I increasingly think. I mean, it's funny, right? Because like, I I thought and still think that force the vote was stupid. I think that like, if I were in her district, I would obviously you know vote to reelect her. You know, because like she has most of the right policy positions, but. I increasingly think she's a train wreck as a political communicator and like actually does way more harm than good as a political communicator. But like, uh, but yeah, I mean like, so, so how do you, all right. So if we're going to be more like Bernie at his best and less like AOC at her worst, uh, you know, allowing that both of them have a, a combination of good and bad moments, right? Like, what does that look like on the family issue? Right. And I think that there's a way of sort of saying like, look, um, I, you know, we have a broader view than Charlie Kirk does of what counts as a family, you know, and, um, and, you know, people should be allowed to do whatever the hell they want, right? If people want to have like traditional family formations, they should be allowed to do that. If they, if they want to live in, you know, polyamorous, wicked lesbian communes, they should be allowed to do that, you know, but, um, but yeah, I, I do think people want to start families should be able to, and that's a good thing. And this is a place to, um, and that's the place I think to pivot to the bread and butter issues to like what it would actually take to to economically enable people to have the kind of families they want to have. And I would make a I would make an obscure Marxist point here that a lot of the left hang on to Engels' uh, English translation of Engels, who said abolish the family, but that translation of abolish abolish should actually be sublate, which means <laughs> to both abolish and to transcend. So, you know, we shouldn't be trying to, you know, get rid of families in the in the kind of in, in a kind of general sense. We should be expanding and building upon what it means to be a family and coming up with a new superior 
version of the family, an understanding of the family, which is more encompassing and more humane uh, and uh, less oppressive than it has been historically. Yeah. Uh, Gene, did you, did you watch the... Um... Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I cannot improve on it. Uh, did you watch the um, uh, the debate I did a few weeks ago in Texas? So it's uh, in there. The reason I'm asking is that there's this there's this Republican woman on that panel who was uh, bringing up uh, Marx and Engels supposedly advocating the abolition of the family in the Communist Manifesto. Um, oh. And uh, brought out. And yeah, so she brought that up because and, like she brought it up in a particularly demented way that like made it clear that she had read it. But um, but like, you know, the point I was making in response to that is just like, look, read the Communist Manifesto. What do they actually say? Right. What they say or I mean, whatever, what Mark says, I'm pretty sure Ingalls, you know, gave him some money and brandy while he was working on it and put his name on later. But uh, what, you know, Mark says in the uh, the Communist Manifesto about about the family is that the communists are accused of wanting to abolish the family, but, uh, but this is, uh, but it's actually already been abolished under capitalism. Um, and you know, by, by which he means, you know, the sort of, um, deterioration of family relationships under the strain of, of, uh, I think, I think he said, I think I, I, it's not in communist manifesto. I think it might be in wage labor. Maybe it's an art. Not, Somewhere, he says, the bourgeoisie have communalized all their wives as they're always having affairs with one another. Yeah, I think that actually is the Communist Manifesto, but yeah, no, yeah, um, I, I, I believe so. Yeah, the community of women part, but yes. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's like, what? It, yeah, so I, I, I think that, um, but yeah, putting the Marxology to one side, I think that, like, I, I think rhetorically leading into, you know, I think there's like a complex truth here that you could accurately describe in a number of different ways. I think the way that it's most, that's, I think the accurate thing that's most politically useful to focus on um, is, uh, is, is that we, you know, we, we want it to, uh, you know, I mean, look, I mean, you, you want to talk about why a lot of people aren't having, you know, started families right now. It's not because of like feminist academic trends or anything like that. That has nothing to do with anything, right? They have a. Uh, it it has to do with the fact that uh, that people don't feel like they're making enough money for it. I mean that you know. I mean that's the. I mean that's 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 really it more than anything. And even if people who are might might be making enough money, there's such job instability uh, that people don't feel that they can plan for the long term anymore. Yeah, I mean, look in the. Um, I mean. Some of the Nordic countries, which are by some measures like some of the most gender equal human societies that have ever existed, um, also have more stay at home moms than the United States does, right? Um, like not, not stay at home in America. Yeah, good luck stay at home in America. Exactly right. Like it's not set up for that, you know. So it's like I I would like a society that has as few cultural pressures as possible for it to be the mob if, you know, it'd be better for them to be the dad or, like, whatever, right? You know, people should be able to do what they want free from, like, distorting well, pressure, but, like... And raise, raising children is a, a job that people might want to do. One of the cruelties of bourgeois feminism is that it imposes, you know, it basically... Force, it's been harnessed by capitalism to both force women to continue on with the oppressive traditional roles of the family. But now, 
everybody has to have a bloody career. Now, of course, the poor always had to go and have a career, but now everybody's doing it. You're middle class. You have to go have. You have to go work and have. Yeah, and, 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 and good luck taking time off and then plugging back in later. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly, right? and it's 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 uh, so we it's like uh, you know if you look at how academia is structured, although it's much better than many many other industries, um, you know it's still extremely difficult for a young mother to pursue a career because you know the the, the structure is set up that there isn't like that much support for uh, for. You know, women who want to pursue their career but also have a family as well. And it's even worse in other professional fields where you're kind of, like, excluded informally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would like, you know, without even skipping ahead to think about how I would I would like, you know, fully automated luxury communism to work in the 23rd century or anything just in terms of, like, you know, social democratic short-term goals. You know, I would like, uh, I would like to live in a society where... Um, you know, where uh, if you have like, you know, yeah, one parent who wants to stay at home entirely or or, or both parents want to work part time so they could, you know, they can share childcare duties the rest of the time or whatever. Right. I mean, that like where all of these options are, are economically enabled in ways exactly. that they, they certainly aren't for the working class, but they're not even for, you know, the middle class professionals you're talking about. You know, and I would, I would like them to be enabled for everybody, and I think that should really be the message more than anything. You know that. Um, so uh, there's a lot more we could say about all these things, but this has been really this has been really fun, Gene. You have been extremely generous with your time. Thank you so uh, much for inviting me, Ben. Uh, so I should say, if you have not had your fill of of, of listening to me talk to people from this is from uh, this is revolution. In about three hours, I am going to be on uh, the Give Them an Argument YouTube channel talking to Jason Miles and also our good friend uh, Toure Reed about uh, the movie American Psycho. Uh, I've, been, uh, I've been doing um, movie conversations with, with Jason and Toure about once a month, and this time we're going to do it live because we're putting some, uh, we're, you know, we're trying to free up some clips to be put in the bag for, for when I'm on vacation. Uh, you know, started next week. So, uh, you know, so, um, so I think we're going to do it live tonight so people could, uh, could, uh, tune in to talk about that. Is there anything you want to plug before you go, Gene? Uh, no, just everybody listening, go check out Sublation Magazine, www.sublationmag.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and do go check the This Is Revolution YouTube channel, go check out Jason Miles, Pascal Robert, Kuba Reznevsky. I've learned how to say his name. And uh, I'm very excited. Kuba Smith. Yeah, Smith. It's probably is like Smith. But um, I'm very excited for your next article for Sublation, your, your first article for Sublation magazine, which I think is going to be a banger, but I won't ruin the surprise. All right, fair enough. Yeah, people may have heard me tease one previous one, which uh, is still in the works, but I'm gonna have to re. You know, I'm, I'm working on that one. It's gonna be a little while. I'm gonna do something else as the first one. But uh, in any case, uh, yep, I'm looking forward to that too. So I will. Uh, I will talk to you soon, Gene. Thanks everybody for listening. Left is.